0: Welcome to Amy Bone Syndrome Podcast, Episode 4, Patches for Episodes 1 to 3. Welcome again to a new episode of Avian Bone Syndrome Podcast. This is going to be a little unusual in that it's a patch episode. Now, what is a patch? I mean patch as in computing, and to quote Wikipedia, a patch is a piece of software designed to update a computer program or its supporting data to fix or improve it. This includes fixing security vulnerabilities and other bugs and improving the usability or performance. Well, of course, in this case, there is no security vulnerability to fix, there is no performance to upgrade, but I found there were a few things that I mentioned in the previous episodes that I didn't fully discuss, or things that people have asked me about, and that I thought I should get into in more detail. So let's begin with episode one, eclipses. Some people pointed out that I only spoke about solar eclipses. I didn't mention lunar eclipses, which do exist and do happen. What about them? Why didn't I talk about them? Well, the reason is that lunar eclipses are pretty boring (laughs) compared to solar eclipses. See, a solar eclipse happens when you have the moon between the sun and the earth, and the moon is casting a shadow on the earth. A lunar eclipse happens when you have the earth between the sun and the moon. It only happens during full moon as it requires a proper alignment, so you cannot have it during any other phase of the moon, even a total lunar eclipse, the Moon doesn't completely disappear. You would expect that the Earth casting a shadow on the Moon, you would not see the Moon anymore. Well, it doesn't really work like that. And in this regard, it's actually even more boring than the partial solar eclipses that you barely notice, as we've said in Episode 1. Now, the Moon doesn't disappear completely during even a total lunar eclipse, because the Earth's atmosphere scatters the light that comes from the Sun And the red light, uh, having a longer wavelength, just makes it easier to pass through the atmosphere itself. It's related to the fact that sunsets and sunrises on Earth are reddish in color. That's because the angle of incidence of the light is much lower, and it only allows red light with its longer wavelength to get through. So the moon does not completely disappear, because even though the Earth is casting a shadow on it, some light still manages to get to it, and it's red light. That's why during a lunar eclipse, you get this red moon. Now, where this gets interesting is, if you were on the moon during such an eclipse, you would effectively see the sun disappear, covered by the Earth, just like you see the sun disappear, covered by the moon during a solar eclipse on Earth. But the difference is that, in that case, on the moon, you would actually see this red flares around the Earth. And not only that, you would actually see some of the Earth Even though it would be the dark side, you would still see some of it, because the moon itself would reflect this red light back to Earth. So it would actually be pretty alien to us to witness something like that. And as far as I know, no human has ever seen that in person. But eclipses, when you think about it, are just shadows, and shadows are everywhere in the universe. Anywhere you have light, you're bound to have shadows at some point. And even us, when you think about it, we are casting eclipses on our planet every time we go outside. Sunlight travels for 150 million kilometers to reach Earth. That's around 93 million miles. And despite traveling at the speed of light, of course, it still takes eight minutes to reach us. And when you think about it, every time we go outside, we are casting a shadow on the planet. We are causing a small eclipse on the planet. So in a sense, we are preventing those photons which have traveled all the way for 150 million kilometers from reaching the ground. Just how selfish is that, right? (laughs) But that's it for lunar eclipses. As I said, there's not much to say about it because it's not that great. But if you go to my portfolio, you will be able to see collections of pictures from both solar eclipses and lunar eclipses that I've taken, and you will be able to compare them and see for yourself whether you prefer solar eclipses or lunar eclipses. Now, moving on to episode two, photography and ethics. Well, the ethics part has been covered in quite some detail, so I'm not going to discuss that. But some listeners have asked me more about the history of photography, which I briefly touched. Well, there is a kind of photography, which is not really photography, that's really interesting, that that many people are not aware of. It's a system called daguerreotype, and it takes its name from a French well artist, photographer, inventor, I'm not really sure what to call him. Now daguerreotypes do not use film at all, nowhere in the process film is ever used. And it's based on copper sheets plated with silver, which is then treated so that they would be sensitive to light. These sheets were then exposed, just like a film would be. And the latent picture would be treated with vapor of mercury and other weird chemicals to remove the sensitivity to light and make the image stay. And the whole thing was then put under protective glass. The result of this is something really eerie and unusual It's really hard to describe in words or even just in pictures. You have to see it for yourself and it's more similar to a hologram than to a photograph. As you move this plate side to side you can actually see it alternate from positive to negative. It's kind of like tilting a credit card side to side and see the hologram change colors and effectively change shapes before your eyes. And of course we're talking about the old days of photography and the exposures were very long, much longer than we consider long today. Uh, There is a picture, there is a daguerreotype, made in 1838, one year before the procedure was presented publicly by Louis Daguerre, and it's taken in Paris. The exposure is actually so long, and exposure is so long that moving traffic cannot even be seen in the picture. Because the sensitivity of the plate was so low that it required such a long time that everything moved. Only static objects were effectively recorded. And you can see some people who stayed long enough without moving, but the result is quite different from reality. There is this story about a Swedish amateur daguerreotypist who actually almost blinded one of his models, because he asked him to look straight into the sun for five minutes in order to expose his plate. And of course, that's not a very healthy thing to do, as we learned in episode one about eclipses. But thankfully, photography evolved over time, and many kinds of film came up. Now it's kind of dying out, effectively, but there were many kinds of film. You had positive, negative film, monochrome and color film, uh, higher and lower sensitivity film, and there are also many sizes, physical sizes of film. The standard one that we are all familiar with is called... Uh, 135 film. It uses a frame size of 24 by 36 millimeters, and it's also used in cinema to make movies. The only difference is that the movie frames are exposed horizontally between the sprockets on the sides, and of course the length is much longer than a standard roll film. We're talking about hundreds of meters or feet. The reason that this size of film became the standard for photography was that it was very convenient for photojournalists who needed something that was reliable and stable and easy to load, and that would give a good compromise between portability and frame size, which directly influences the quality you get from it. It's actually so popular that to this day, even digital cameras are called full frame if they have a sensor that's as big as a traditional frame on one of those rolls of film. I personally do not work with a full-frame digital camera because it would make everything bulkier, heavier, and more expensive. There are also many other kinds of sizes. Many digital cameras use APS-C sensors, which are 1.5 to 1.6 times smaller than a full-frame sensor. There are micro four-thirds sensors that are two times smaller. And there are higher-end cameras that are bigger than the traditional sensor. And of course, as you may imagine, that becomes really much more expensive. In fact, even with film, there's something called medium format, in which a single frame, a single negative picture, is as wide as 6 centimeters by at least 4.5. And as you can imagine, that gives you a much higher quality, but doesn't stop there. They go all the way up to 6 by 9 centimeters, actually in some cases even 6 by 12. And at the higher end, you have what's called large format cameras. Large format cameras are particularly interesting because you actually expose big sheets of photographic paper, just as big as a regular sheet of paper, only it's photosensitive. And large format cameras are really weird, because they look like they're coming out of the 1800s. They're so big and bulky, and they have absolutely nothing automatic. You usually have to move a cover that acts as a shutter, and time the exposure yourself, and I don't think there are many people nowadays doing that. There was a website dedicated to large format photography, and it's a wonderful read if you're into that kind of thing. But it's the kind of stuff that really makes you wonder, who does this? Because it takes so much effort, even just moving things. And Ansel Adams, the inventor of the Zone system, went around and lugged something like over 120 kilograms worth of photo equipment up in the mountains to take pictures with that kind of system. And as you know, if you know anything about Ansel Adams, while well, the results are completely stunning, there's something that just cannot be reached with any other kind of equipment, but it takes a lot of dedication and a lot of strength, also physically speaking, to do that. In fact, I think he um, enlisted local farm animals to, to help him out with that. Generally speaking, however, the format or the kind of camera that you use doesn't really matter. What's important in photography is having a camera with you to capture the moment. There is a saying that photographers enjoy using, which is that best camera you can have is the one you have with you. And that's true. Sometimes the best camera you can have is the smartphone you have in your pocket. Even though you may not have the best lens or the highest quality, it's still something that you have. What good is having a great quality camera if it's stuck in a bag at home? So my suggestion for anyone who wants to take pictures is just take pictures and don't worry about the rest. There's always time to improve, there's always time to get better, there's always time to learn, but in the meantime, get out there and take pictures, because the most important thing is having fun with it. Now, moving on to episode 3, privacy today. This is the episode that probably raised most eyebrows than the rest, and of course, I'm not surprised by that. There's something else I didn't mention in my episode, and I promise this is not going to be as creepy as what I've said. I mean, I actually don't think I can top that, even if I tried. There's something interesting that it's a side effect of all the tracking, all the data mining that all these companies do about us. And it's the creation of what's called a filter bubble. And this term was coined by Eli Pariser in his TED talk and book, which I urge you to read and watch. I'm going to post links on this episode's description as usual. This filter bubble essentially defines your online world. As more companies track you, let's take Facebook for example, because that's probably the most obvious example of this. On Facebook, you may have noticed that you are more likely to see things by people with whom you interact the most, especially if you have several hundred friends. You do not see everything that every single person posts. And that's not just an impression of yours. That's precisely what's happening. Facebook learns that you like to talk with specific people. It knows because you do it on the site, so they know everything about what you do on the site. Of course, it's their own site, after all. And it will keep showing you things by those people precisely because of that. You may have noticed that when once in a while something else pops up and you interact with that, you will start seeing more by that person you may have noticed that you are more likely to see political contents about views that are similar to yours, as opposed to the views that are opposite yours. Again, this is not a coincidence. It's done deliberately. A few years ago, Eli Pariser made this test. He asked two people he knew to make the same search on Google. And the search was Egypt. This happened during the revolution in Egypt a few years ago. Now, person A, who was following the political unrest and turmoil in northern Africa, got news about the protests in Egypt. Person B, who was not at all interested in all those things, only got results about tourism in Egypt. Why do they do this? Well, there is so much stuff out there that this is the wrong way to help you find content that's relevant to you. Google actually lets you switch between your customized and your non-customized results when you make a search and you're logged into your Google account. If you look in the upper right corner, you will see there's a little button that lets you choose between the two things. Of course, helping you out is the official reason for doing this. The real reason, and the not so good reason, is that this is a way to keep you on the site. Facebook keeps showing you things that you're interested in so that you will spend more time on Facebook and by doing this you will reinforce what they know about you and you will want to spend even more time on it. That's why Facebook is such a time sucker because you just cannot get away from it. When you start using it and you start interacting with people, you will keep going there and everything works towards that goal. Even making messaging so convenient on all platforms is another way to keep you on it. And as I said, just like Google reads your email, you can expect that Facebook reads your messages. So whatever you say on Facebook in a private messenger can and will be used, well, not against you in court, but to promote specific things They will monitor keywords so that if you talk politics with your friends on Facebook, you'll probably be getting uh, more contents by other people about politics. If you discuss travel plans in a private message with your friend, Uh, you may be getting advertising about places that you you have mentioned. Everything is really functional to that goal and you may argue, well, this is not a bad thing. If I'm not interested in cats, why should I see cats? Well, if you're on the internet, you cannot escape cats. Sorry about that. (laughs) But more seriously, if you're not interested in architecture, I have no point in Facebook showing me that my friend who's studying architecture is posting all these things about Japanese palaces. I don't care. And so Facebook learned that, and he doesn't show me that, even though I may talk with that person in private, because they will know that we do not discuss architecture in private, so it's probably something I'm really not interested in. The problem is that by doing this, over time, I will be creating my own bubble, my own world, with things that I am interested in, which is great, but at the same time, I'm also not allowed out. I may be missing out on a lot of stuff that I just don't know that I would be interested in, simply because I never see that. And that's why it's called a filter bubble, because it's our own small world that we're sheltered in. And as convenient as it is, it does have the drawback of keeping us locked in. And the more we use, the more we stay in the bubble, the more we keep feeding that bubble. And the very on-site effect of this is that it's really difficult to kick something out of the bubble Say you have a discussion with someone, and you don't want to see what they post anymore. Sure, you can tell Facebook, don't show me this, and that's actually a great way to mold your bubble, but if you've been talking with that person for a long time, Facebook will not really take the hint immediately, because Facebook's algorithms will see that you have 55,000 messages exchanged with that person over the last year and a half, and why suddenly you want to kick them out? Maybe you click that by mistake. And it will take some time for the algorithm to realize that, hey, you really don't want to see that. And the creepy part, you knew I had to put something creepy in this, if this is not creepy enough, is that Facebook is actually monitoring the way you use your mouse on the site. They will not only monitor when you click and how long after messages mean on your screen you clicked on it to reply or to like or to comment, or anything like that. They will also monitor the way you move your mouse pointer on the site, because that gives them an idea of how you interact with your posts. Even worse, it's been found out that when you type a message on your status box, and then you delete it, Facebook still retains a copy of what you've said, even though you never posted it. Because that gives a lot of insight into what people may be about to post, and then they change their mind about So there is a lot of stuff that's going on and that we may not be fully aware of. But as I said in my previous message, don't let that dishearten you. Just know that, well, you have to take a few steps to discover new things. Sometimes you have to go to the most recent, almost hidden link on Facebook, because by default you will only see the things that it deems more relevant. Google Now itself will post things that it will deem more relevant. Twitter is doing the same. When you go to Twitter now, uh, especially on the mobile application and you haven't opened it in a while, it will show you the things that you may have missed. That's what it's called. And when you dismiss it, it actually asks you, did you like this? And when you say no, it doesn't really stop them from showing the same thing next time you go back. It's all used to tweak the things that it's showing you. And again, as you scroll up and down and you favorite and you reply to a tweet and everything, that's also taken into account to recommend your suggestions. Instagram does the same. If you use Instagram, not necessarily a lot, even just enough to kickstart the whole process, if you go to the search tab, it will show you photos and people that you may be interested in. And it's creepily accurate. On Android, they actually tell you why they're showing you these people. They will tell you, we're showing you this because you like this person and you like this person. On iOS, they don't do it. If you have an iPhone and you use Instagram, it's even creepier because you just don't know why. It looks like it's reading your mind. And the way they do this is by analyzing the pictures you like, the profiles you hop onto, and not just the text that are on those pictures, they also use the pictures themselves. It's incredible what today's technology can do to define what's in a picture. You may have used this. If you upload a picture on Google Images, there's a little camera icon that lets you upload a file. And if you use Google Chrome, you can do this with every single picture that appears on your screen. You just need to right-click, and there is a menu entry that says, Search Google for this image. When you do that, it's going to find other copies of that picture, which is a great way to identify something that you don't know what it is. But it will also show you similar pictures, not just in terms of colors and layout, but also in terms of contents. And all of this is used to improve the profile that these companies have about you. And arguably, they do provide a better service. The problem is that once again, they're feeding you material to create and shape your bubble. But what if you want to go out of your bubble? Sometimes you have to make the active effort to do so. And let's face it, most people are lazy and will not do it which is why a lot of people are stuck doing the same things or reading the same things or playing the same things over and over again. Because everything works in order to keep them in their comfort zone. And as we know, knowledge is not something that you can be lazy about. There is a search engine called DuckDuckGo, which is a very weird name for a search engine, which promises not to track you and not to use anything about you to condition your searches. Uh, and of course, it's not Google, it's not even Bing. It really feels like the search engines we had back in the day, 20 years ago. But it's a good start. It's promising, and it's something that you may want to try sometimes. You know, maybe if you're looking for something on Google or Bing or whatever you use, probably use one of those two anyway. Uh, sometimes go to DuckDuckGo and run the same search. And you may be amazed at the results. Sometimes you'll get something that's completely off-topic, but sometimes it will be something that feels off-topic, because you are just so used to having searches, and search results especially, tailored to you, that you almost got to the point where you expect it to happen. But that's something to try, and who knows, maybe you will find that it's not so bad not to have a filter bubble around you anymore. And on that note, I think that this is all for episode 4. As always, keep your feedback coming, you can go to the website, you can email me, and now you can go to the new Facebook page that I created for Avian Bone Syndrome and Avian Bone Syndrome Podcast. It's the same page, it's facebook.com slash avianbone very easy to remember. And make sure you like it, you may also want to subscribe to notifications so you don't miss anything, because again, the bubble will work against you, <laughs> and now you can use that to contact me directly. So if you have anything about the show or want to tell me something about what I've said or you want to suggest new topics, by all means, go for it. It's very convenient. It's right on Facebook. I'll be back soon with episode 5. And in the meantime, as always, stay human. The music used in this episode is Look Busy and Porch Swing Days by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com.